and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today I'm talking to Kylie Reid, author of Such a Fun Age, which tells the story of a young black woman who's wrongly accused of kidnapping while babysitting a child and the events that follow it. Kylie's debut novel has been selected for Reese Witherspoon's book club and the rights have been snapped up to develop it for the screen by Lena Waite. Kylie and I chat about writing a book that makes people challenge their perceptions, the multiple layers of effective dialogue and the importance of taking a step back before you dive into writing a scene to consider what it needs to achieve. Excuse me, ma'am. Footsteps followed, and when Amira turned around, a gold security badge blinked and glittered in her face. On top, it read, Public Safety, and the bottom curve read, Philadelphia. Briar pointed up at his face. That, she said, is not the mailman. Amira swallowed and heard herself say, Oh, hi. The man stood in front of her and placed his thumbs in his belt loops, but he did not say hello back. Amira touched her hair and said, are you guys closing or something? She knew this store would stay open for another 45 minutes. It stayed open, clean, and stocked until midnight on weekends, but she wanted him to hear the way she could talk. From behind the security guard's dark sideburns, At the other end of the aisle, Amira saw another face. The gray-haired, athletic-looking woman, who had appeared to be touched by Briar's dancing, folded her arms over her chest. She'd set her grocery basket down by her feet. Ma'am, the guard said. Amira looked up at his large mouth and small eyes. He looked like the type of person to have a big family, the kind that spends holidays together for the entire day from start to finish, and not the type of person to use ma'am in passing. It's very late for someone this small, he said. Is this your child? Uh, No, Amira laughed. I'm her babysitter. All right, well, he said. With all due respect, you don't look like you've been babysitting tonight. Amira found herself arranging her mouth as if she'd ingested something too hot. She caught a morphed reflection in a freezer door, and she saw herself in her entirety. Her face, full brown lips, a tiny nose, and a high forehead covered with black bangs, barely showed up in the reflection. Her black skirt, her slinky V-neck top, and her liquid eyeliner refused to take shape in the panels of thick glass. All she could see was something very dark and skinny and the top of a small blonde stick of hair that belonged to Briar Chamberlain. Kay, she exhaled. I'm her babysitter and her mom called me because, hi, I'm so sorry, I just, hi. From the end of the aisle, the woman came forward and her very used tennis shoes squeaked against the tile floor. She put a hand to her chest. I'm a mom, and I heard the little girl say that she's not with her mom, and since it's so late, I got a little nervous. Amira looked at the woman and half laughed. 
The sentiment felt childish, but all she could think was, you really just told on me right now. Hey, Kylie. Thanks so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's kick things off with a little introduction to your debut novel, Such a Fun Age. Yes. Uh, should I do a little plot breakdown for you? Absolutely. Okay. So Such a Fun Age starts uh, in September of 2015. We meet Amira Tucker. She is a 25-year-old uh, babysitter who is African-American. She's at that stage in your life where you don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to use your college education. And you live in kind of a crap apartment and you eat the same meal about four times a week. She's in that. And she does know that she loves babysitting Briar, who's a three-year-old child, who's a very serious and odd toddler. So Amira is babysitting Briar when a security guard accuses her of stealing the child. Someone pulls out their cell phone. She's humiliated. It creates this event that kind of shakes things up for her and everyone involved, including Alex Chamberlain who is the child's mother. This is Briar's uh, mom. She is a very savvy 32-year-old woman who's just moved from New York to Philadelphia begrudgingly, and she sets out to right this night's wrongs, but it becomes a comedy of good intentions after that, and I've been told it's both fun and cringy and uncomfortable. Oh, my God, it really is. Like, it's, oh, good. <laughs> it re- yeah, it really is. Like, you know, the, the I think definitely uncomfortable is, is one of like, hilarious because there's so much so much great humor and so many great characters but there is yeah so there's so many nuances within it that um you know you explore layers upon layers of what make up people and the societies that we live in and um yeah the subtle way you weave in so much around such an interesting story you know there's there's a lot going on there to kind of under underlying like the the major interesting story can you talk a little bit about how the novel kind of began life So I love just like the truth of awkward dialogue and how people try to level the playing field a bit when they're talking. And I've gotten a lot of uh, comments that the novel takes on race in a light way. And that's not to make race a fun topic to talk about. I'm not trying to make it more romantic or easy, but I wanted to reflect how people like to talk about race in class, which is with a light hand, with a joke to make it more comfortable for everyone. And so I was definitely inspired by the uncomfortableness of that. And I just love how, for some reason, the number three, especially with people, makes things really a really awkward uh, triangle. And I, I got lucky and got two. There's Amira... There's the mom she babysits for, and there's the person who filmed it, who every all of them see the instant very, very differently. And then there's Amira, the child she babysits for, and Alex, which also creates an awkward interaction of, you know, well, I'm her mother. Oh, well, I spend more time with her. If the child likes someone more at one moment or someone else at a different moment, I love all of those awkward interactions. And so that's where I think it started. Wow. So did you, did you think, were you thinking about those three-way dynamics when you were coming up with the idea, with, idea for the story? Was that kind of what you were hoping to explore? Think, you know, who we are with one person versus who we are with another person. And the theme of ownership became really important to me. Um, I mean, we all do this when we think, oh, well, I've known her longer. So like, she's more mine or, oh, well, I'm dating her now. So she's mine now. Those things of ownership, especially in the United States, uh, a history of white people owning their black caretakers um, became really interesting and very uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That was actually something that I was going to ask you about. Um, You know, that kind of 
the kind of concept of the white saviour, which you obviously have in here, you know, with, with Alex, who's trying to do everything that she can to kind of write the events of this evening where, um, where Amir is humiliated at the, at the store. And then mm-hmm. Kelly, obviously, who is the guy that filmed the, the, the event happening, but then he gets into a romantic relationship with Amira. And they're, they're both pushing Amira in certain directions, thinking that they know what's best for her. And it is kind of that presumed ownership of people within certain dynamics. So, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about your exploration of it within the novel. like I, I love the idea that you would have chosen the characters or to, to best convey the dynamics. Yeah, I always start with characters. I never go into a novel or anything saying I'm going to write about, you know, a big topic like race or white saviorism or anything like that. I have to see where the characters take me. I think the biggest and most important thing was uh, highlighting every character where they are very charming, where they are very nice. Both of Alex and Kelly are those things very often. Um, I think it was fun to highlight how... Uh, very differing opinions and ways of helping people can live really harmoniously within one person. Um, I think that everyone in the novel has these biases, but also really cares about the people around them. And I think that's a superhuman trait um, that I often like don't, you know, it's kind of like a, I think we often like to believe the lie that uh, people with racial biases are terrible in every other way, but that's not true. I think it's a romantic idea that, oh, anyone who has any kind of racial bias, they're bad all around and they're a terrible person to be around and you'll know them immediately and you'll stay away from them. But that's not true. Um, Alex and Kelly are very much like people I know and have worked with and have been friends with and they carry these preconceptions that look like they're helping and I think they genuinely feel like they're helping. but we can see that sometimes it's not that way. And I think that's a really human dynamic. And most, you know, people who carry those beliefs also carry really great beliefs. And so I wanted to really round out these characters and show that. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the the most amazing things about the book is that all the, all the gray areas that you highlight, you know, like between the characters and in relation to the dynamics between the different races and, um, you know, you have all these people that, to some extent, they're thinking they're trying to do the right thing. And even though their version of doing the right thing can be completely misguided or insulting or widely infuriating or, you know, just everyone kind of has their blind sides and areas they can't possibly yeah. understand because of their specific life circumstances. So even if they think that they're doing the right thing, you know, they, they can be completely, completely wrong. One thing that I found very interesting about how you portrayed it was it was kind of a level of empathy of like showing how multifaceted all the characters are so even though they could be so wrong and their behavior could be so insulting you then show the side of their life experience that kind of you know sort of you're showing all the facets of their characters it felt like it was very much written from a point of view of empathy for the characters oh yeah I mean if you well I don't I don't know how other writers write about their characters if they don't like them you have to like them from from my side And finding out why people are the way they are and what drives them, it's, it's, I think it's such a human experience. And so, yes, I love all, every single one of my characters, even the ones that make really terrible decisions. And I love living in that gray area. I think that's what makes writing interesting is situations that aren't super clear cut. Um, As long as you're speaking to the, to the truth of your character's experience, I think that's what makes it interesting. Mm, For sure. Um, so 
Can you talk a little bit about the character development that you did for each of your characters? Like yes. The work you did on that. Um, I definitely started with Amira and Alex. With Amira, I wanted to have this almost perfect depiction of a perfect B minus student. Um, there's, it's. I remember growing up, it's not super easy to find black characters in literature. And then the ones that you do see are kind of at either ends of the spectrum of being extremely perfect or extremely problematic. And so I, I wanted to know like what it looks like in the middle. And she was an easier character to write. She really took off from the beginning, probably because I've been 25 and had a little moment where I was like, how do I do this adult thing a little bit? So I think her insecurities as far as where she should be and where she was, was an easy starting off point for her. Um, And Alex was a little bit harder in the beginning. I actually wrote 50 pages of the novel and then I gave it to a writer that I trust and he said, start over because Alex is not working. And when I really highlighted the points of Alex's character that are really great and the things that she's good at, that's where she really took off. Well, how did you feel about being told to start again? (laughs) Terrible, but very (laughs) grateful. (laughs) I mean, that is what you want in those beginning stages. Those are the edits and opinions that really matter. And so he did assure me that the idea was there. Uh, So, and sometimes, you know, as a writer, you kind of live off of that comment for about four months. Uh, But yeah, of course, it's terrible. (laughs) But I'm glad I did. And how did you, because obviously when you're trying to write sort of um, about these, as much as obviously there's all of this stuff bubbling under the surface with all of your characters, there is a very like cohesive plot and an interesting plot. You know, it's, it's a real like page turning book. It's completely absorbing. And I wonder how you balanced the story element with the issues element. Uh, yeah, well, I, I love a really tight uh, plot. I love really traditional plot lines. And so that was a big part from the beginning. Um, I did not know the ending of this novel for probably two years through writing it. But towards the end, it's more about listening to what your characters would do rather than creating these plot points for them. But I definitely remember being in two different places where I would try and write out the plot of this novel. And I thought this is never going to work. It's never going to work. So I'm really glad that I figured it out at the end. Well, so and so, were you were you trying to plot it out, and then you just thought, actually, I need to kind of let go of that idea of having the the final, the sort of the finale planned, and just kind of let my and listen to listen to the characters. It was definitely about listening to the characters toward the end. I think the plot was important in the beginning to set them up well. But for example, there's a scene at the end of the novel where Alex comes to Amira's apartment. And for probably months, I thought that Amira would have that conversation that they needed to have in Alex's house. But it made a lot of sense when I was writing it. I was like, she she would never leave her apartment in the scene. That just wouldn't make sense. So things like that were, you know, difficult because I had to scrap, you know, 15, 20 pages sometimes and start again. But I'm glad that I took a moment to listen to what they would do. It's so funny, isn't it, when you've when you've written that much, when you've written sort of scenes that are kind of they're kind of roughly there. And then you have mm-hmm. that moment where you go, actually, <laughs> that doesn't. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that kind of oh, moment. Especially, yeah. So, especially writing from two characters' point of views. I definitely had maybe two or three chapters where I started it from one character's point of view. And I was like, nope, this doesn't make sense. I have to switch it. So, yeah, lots of deleted pages. But then I suppose that 
writing it from one character's perspective and then deciding it to write it from the others is only going to kind of make the writing richer because you've already considered it from the other person's perspective. Oh, 100%. I I, I completely agree with that. And even the 50 pages that I did at the beginning that I had to delete later, they're still informing what my characters are and what they are not, or what I want to stay away from, or what tendencies I want to highlight. All of those pages go into it, into the final, I think. It's just painful to throw them away, of course. Yeah, for sure, for sure. How did you, how did you find, like, how did you find the writing of the different voices within the book? Did you, you said, you said that Amira came to you quite easily, but how did Mm -hmm. you, yeah, did you... How did you find jumping between the two or did you kind of write one person's plot line and then add in another one's plot line? I think for the most part, it was fairly easy to get into both of their heads. It's kind of funny when I had the idea for the novel, I was closer to Amira's age. And as I finished it, I was closer to Alex's age and finding their voices individually when they were with their friends was easier, but there's a, Thanksgiving scene where they all come together and those parts were the hardest yeah what a scene I feel like I I could see it happening you know just all of that (laughs) intensity and awkwardness my god like it was oh good 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 there was a lot of mapping that one out with like where people are sitting at the table and I kept losing babies I kept forgetting where the babies (laughs) were at so I'm glad it worked out when you say when you say mapping out the scene like that can you talk a little bit about how what that looked like I love hearing yes. about people's planning. <laughs> totally. Um, there's a lot of taking a step back and saying, what do, do I need to accomplish in this scene? And sometimes that's like three things. It'll be like, we need to realize that Alex has lied. We need to realize that Amira has lied. And we need to uh, put these two people together in a way that feels natural. So like those might be my goals for the scene. But so many other things will end up happening throughout that of like, where do we need a laugh? Where, you know, did we forget that the children are involved in this? And -and so-and-so wouldn't let this go by without saying something. It's kind of like mapping out all of the characters um, and what they wouldn't or would let happen. And then it's like a math, math problem of like putting where those make sense. Does that make sense? That was very confusing. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that does make sense. And, and like, and, that, and ha- working out an objective for a scene, and especially when there's so many, you know, like that's where all of the dynamics that you've been exploring kind of come together. All of Alex's friendships and the romances and the, you know, everything comes together in one place. So mm-hmm. to know what your aims are for it makes perfect sense rather than just diving on in. Oh, yeah, I have to. I can't go into it. Well, sometimes I do, I'll just write whatever I want, I want and I'm. I'm like, well, I think I'm just like enjoying my own writing. I feel like as, as a, I don't know if anyone else goes like this, as soon as you're just enjoying writing a little too much, I feel that the plot suffered. I like to have a goal of what the scene is achieving, whether it's an emotional thing, whether it's a, a character or a plot device. I definitely like to have some points that I'm trying to hit. For sure. And like, was, was, is that something that you, um, you know, you just kind of write a list of? Or are you? Oh, I love lists. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> tons of lists. <laughs> yeah, all the time. And of course, they're ever changing. Or there's times where I'll say, "Okay, I'm not going to achieve this goal in this scene. I'm going to wait till another scene." But yes, there's been many, many lists that have gone into this one. I love that. I've got. I mean, I'm sat in, I sat in my office, and there's just charts all over the walls of like different timelines and different things like that, and all about the color coding. It's speaking to my heart. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so you, you, you mentioned um, that you started writing it when you were kind of Alex's age and you, uh, 
Anira's age and then you finished writing it so when you were nearer to Alex's age so can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about yeah how long it took you to write and your journey with it yeah I had the idea loosely when I was 25 or 26 but it took a few years to actually think about writing it and then began earnestly writing it around age 29 and then finished it in the middle of grad school when I was turning 31 and so and then we then there's a whole you know other element of after you sell it doing the editing and whatnot with an editor which is a nice process because you're not by yourself at that point anymore so yeah it was interesting to see how I had changed in that time too um the biggest goal was just making both of these characters seem like they were very much affected by where they were in their lives I wonder whether you could have had that same balanced like look at these two women if without having it having taken as many years as it took I might I may not have I don't know it's funny because when I was 25 I was working for a lot of women like Alex and then when I was finishing the novel I was teaching and so I had students who were closer to Amira's age Um, so it's very it's a weird little part of time in your 20s where you know so much can happen in five years Mm. um which puts Alex in a position to really think that she can truly help Amira. And it also puts Amira in a position to think, you know, oh, this woman has her life together. I should probably listen. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I kind of hit it at the right time. I hope I did. I, I saw an interview um, with you, creepy, mm-hmm. creepy, I know, when, um, and you were saying that you feel like you, 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 you haven't been writing about yourself, but you're, so you're no one in the novel, but you're also everyone. One hundred percent. Yeah, I loved that sentiment. Could you speak a little I, bit about that? Yeah, I I don't gravitate towards writing about myself. There's no interaction in the book that has happened to me um, or anyone else that I know. A lot of authors can really write about themselves beautifully, but it's just not for me. Um, I knew what I wanted to do in my twenties. I knew I wanted to write, and I still found it extremely difficult. And so. I wanted to experiment with the mirror about a person who doesn't know what they want to do and how much more difficult that can be. And so that was definitely a jumping off point for a mirror of how hard it is to just say, okay, I'm going to go for this thing and pick this thing and do it for the rest of my life, which is, which seems kind of crazy in your twenties. Um, so that was a definite inspiration for her. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, obviously, um, money is a huge theme within mm-hmm. the novel and obviously that's, you know, it's, Amira worries about it constantly, which keep kind of keeps her in in her role as Alex's employee and makes her sort of feel lesser than her friends who are doing you know more respectable, more grown up jobs, and it sort of makes her hide things about her life from her family as well. She's got a lot of guilt around spending money when she has it, and Alex mm-hmm. Kelly and one of Amira's friends—I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name—they have they have quite a bit of money, and the way that that Shani defi- does, yeah, Shani has a lot of money from her parents, yeah, yeah, and the way that kind of like defines then in kind of in the eyes of a mirror is really interesting yeah so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your exploration of money within the novel and um, yeah, absolutely how, how you used it to portray the different dynamics I think that money is this really interesting uh conversation in literature especially because one people don't like to write numbers <laughs> I don't know why uh people don't like to reveal how much their parent their characters are paying for rent or for their jobs or whatnot I don't know if it makes them think that, you know, readers will read them a certain way. But I like to include those things because my characters are thinking about those things constantly. I was constantly thinking about money and health insurance when I didn't have it. 
in my 20s. And so I definitely share that with Amira. One thing I was really drawn to, especially for Amira in, in terms of Black women in their 20s, is the sunk fallacy concept um, of, oh, well, I put all of this work into this job, so it must mean something because I put so much into it when really that job doesn't mean much to you in your future. And it kind of happens doubly to Amira because not only has she put in so much time with Briar, but Briar also probably won't remember her because she's so young. Mm. And so black women in their twenties, there are so many statistics that point out that however much they make then is going to dictate how much they make for the rest of their lives. And so it seemed, you know, yeah. silly to leave out how Amira is always thinking about money because it dictates so much of her life. And one thing that everyone around her is pointing out is, oh, you should apply to grad school or you should try this or maybe you can do this or you should try this wine. But no one is talking about the fact that she works 35 hours a week and doesn't have health insurance or that she's struggling to pay for rent. And so these are all things that I think would set Amira up for success the most, but they seem to be the least fun for the person giving them. And so I wanted to show all of those complicated money dynamics. I like reading those bits about the book because, you know, money is, money is such a huge thing between every, everything. Money is, like, everything. You, know, you know, everything that you, like I think about it, seem too much. <laughs> yeah, I think we all do. And I think that the language that we use to try and hide the fact that we're talking about money is so interesting. And so much of what Alex means when she doesn't like Amira's, you know, perfume or her clothes or whatever has, I don't know if she realized it, but it has to do with money. And so if money is shaping the way that we see each other, I feel like why not say how much all the time? Yeah, for sure. And that, um, you know, when you were talking about that sort of awkwardness in dialogue and, you know, the awkwardness that putting that, how people interact around money, but also, you know, just, how you've approached your kind of dialogue in general in the book is like, it's, it's, it's really interesting because you, you've managed to make something that's well, it can be relatively heavy, quite funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh, good. <laughs> and, like, and, and, you know, and you really get the voices of all the different characters and stuff like that. And I wondered if, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about your approach to dialogue within the book, you know, how did you, how did you, I got the sense that you really enjoyed the di- writing the dialogue parts. That's, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> dialogue cool. is my favorite thing to write and to read. I studied theater in undergraduate school and there's just something about what is being said, what is trying to be said. Uh, There's so many layers to what someone is trying to achieve. And most of my scenes start with the dialogue and then I go out from there. Interesting. Um, I, I wanted the dialogue to just be so incredibly realistic that it makes you feel uncomfortable um, with no easy getaways, um, especially from someone like Amira who doesn't, I don't think communication is her strongest point. She has to be pushed a little bit. And so I wanted to show what, you know, phrases she uses when she feels uncomfortable, um, or what she does with her body and all of those little tiny ticks that make up a conversation. Yeah. So, so you, so you start with the dialogue. That's so interesting. Did you, did you find that you, you know, when you're mentioning when you're having fun with the writing, you get a bit carried away. (laughs) Was that that an element where with the dialogue where you, did you find yourself getting a bit carried away with the dialogue? Oh, all the time. Yes. I'll write these scenes and then I'll, you know, give it to a friend and they're like, you need to cut out half of this. (laughs) And they're usually right. Um, It kind of turns into, you know, caricatures or like a McSweeney uh, type situation 
where it seems like I'm either making fun of them or whatnot, but I would much rather write so much content and then pull back and show exactly what the scene needs. So yeah, I typically write a ton of dialogue and then probably delete like a third of it. That's interesting. What, so, so what, and because you've, you, because you have done such a good job of it, I have to ask you like what tips you have for people that are, are struggling with dialogue. Cause it seems like it's one of the things that a lot of writers really struggle with. Oh man, I would say one, read your dialogue out loud. If it doesn't flow properly, then change it. Um, You shouldn't have to fight too much to make your dialogue seem like something people would say, I I think. Um, I'm trying to think what else helped me. I have to tell you that, like, I think television has been kind of brilliant lately. And so watching dialogue was really great. I loved the show Atlanta that came out a few years ago. I think the dialogue is brilliant there. Um, so watching dialogue or watching plays, um, really helped as well. Um, and I think editing, like I said before, it's just the biggest thing. If something's not working, take it out. Don't have it anymore. <laughs> just call your quits early, fail early and often. So was, was the, was the, was your manuscript massive to start off with and then you really paired it back or? That's a great question. I took, I was in graduate school when I was finishing writing it and I took the novel workshop, which was a huge help. And so I think I did a lot of editing through the novel workshop. So it wasn't too massive. And then I worked with my agent as well on filling out some areas that needed to be cleared up. Um, I'm my, my manuscript's biggest nightmare. I will delete things very quickly. Thank God. So, yeah. It wasn't too big. Well, that's good not to be, not to be kind of precious about things just because you, you've, you know, you would particularly enjoy a line that you like or something like that. Like, you know, you have to, if you, if you know it doesn't have a place in there, it's good to have that kind of brutal, it's not oh, yeah. attitude. <laughs> get rid of it and if you love it you can write it down and use it somewhere else but if it's not serving the scene there's just really no point in keeping it well so it, a lot of people obviously every writer has something to say you know everyone mm-hmm. that's writing a story is trying to convey something and I wonder if you could offer any tips for people that are trying to you know write something entertaining while also you know talking about something that's important to them yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how I could write anything that wasn't important to me. At the same time, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I have very strong political beliefs, and I, I'm very far to the left, but I wouldn't consider any of my characters that way. So does that mean, you know, it's a leftist book? I don't think so. You know, so I don't really know how, how you can't have your whole self in your book. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that all of your characters are you. And I think that that makes it a little bit of a better read for everyone that you're seeing into other people's lives. Um, I want to think about this one. That's such a good question. Um, I think that writers telling themselves that they can be bipartisan with their fiction is a little bit of a romantic lie a little bit. You will, and you should come out in your novel, but as long as you're speaking to the truth of who these characters are and showing the good and bad parts of all of them, I think that, hopefully your your own beliefs will shine through in that. For sure. It's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, like there, there obviously is a kind of left-leaning slant to it, but that's only, I don't know if that's because I'm reading it from a left-leaning perspective. Right, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's because I'm writing it from there too. So that's a good question. That's a good point. But are my characters like that? No. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting thought for sure. Have you, um, you, you mentioned earlier that you've had quite a lot of interesting conversations about the, about the book and stuff. And I want, have you had any conversations with people that have perhaps been coming at it from a right perspective who've interpreted it differently? 
Um, I would say that most of the conversations where people um, felt uncomfortable were actually people that believe that they have progressive beliefs and want to prove them to me. I've definitely had a lot of people come up to me at readings and whatnot and point out, you know, oh, well, I actually babysit for a black family or, well, our nanny is, we love her and she loves us too. And trying to prove to me that they are not like the people in the book. Um, and I don't know a lot about what that feels like. I can't imagine feeling that guilt from reading something, especially something that I wrote, but I do think it's an interesting reaction. I think it's important to remember that at both Alex and Amira, I would love to believe that they would both enjoy this book. Yeah. Um, we contain multitudes. And if you feel a certain way <laughs> while reading something, I would listen to that. I think that's what books are for. But if your first reaction is defensiveness, I don't know if you're getting a, as big of an enjoyment out of the book as you can. Yeah. I think that's what's, you know, like, there's, there's moments when I felt you know, infuriated by Alex, but also, you know, moments when I like recognized errors that I've probably made, like in, you know, and that, and that kind of, that sort of switch between sympathy to fury, to sort of sympathy to fury, just kind of shows how much we all have to learn. Well, I definitely do have to learn, you know? And oh, then, I'm on the same side. Oh yeah. I love that switch from sympathy to fury. That's great. Um, <laughs> I, I totally agree. I, on one I am, I'm of two minds about it. On one end, I've read books that I believe like changed my life and I love them. And I think that literature can have that power. On the other end, I don't want to fall into a pretense where I think that what I'm doing as a writer is activism. I love writing. That's not, you know, I'm not putting power in hands of people who don't have it. I think that's true activism. And so me by writing it and people by reading it and enjoying it and agreeing with me is, you know, an individual experience. It doesn't affect community at all and so I would love for people to be inspired to actually make those moves but I would hate for anyone to think well I read that book I enjoyed it that means I'm a good person you know that is not what I want from this yeah. at all but but I definitely think that there's going to be an element to the book where people will read it and it will make them reconsider how they perceive situations I, I mean that's, that's I think the that's, dream yes yeah. that's that's it's it's it, like every single part of this book is it makes you question your perceptions of everything. Mm, I I, I'm that's really I'm glad to hear that because those are my favorite books to read. Where I read it and suddenly you know a certain subject or kind of person or situation that I can't think of it differently anymore. That's that's my favorite thing. Oh, good, good. Yes. <laughs> um, tell me, like you know, obviously the book is very timely. How did you did you feel any kind of pressure because you were writing something so kind of timely and zeitgeisty and all that kind of jazz? Did you feel any pressure when you were writing it to get it out there quicker? Or do you think I that it kind of didn't. became what it was at the, yeah, at the time, um, if you see what I mean? I think that being in graduate school and my, my class was a very uh, aggressive class when it came to publishing. I was like the fifth person, I think, to get a book deal while they were in school. I think that it became really clear to me how hard it is to get a book published and how long it takes for the entire process. So I felt like any timely matters would probably be two to three years old by the time that it came to light. And so I have to say that that was kind of a freeing feeling because then I could just say, okay, well, these things did happen and I have the power as a writer to write them in the truth that I see them. And so I can't 
try to get them as accurate as possible because it's not going to, you know, be in anyone's hands for two years. So I hope that people can remember 2015 and what that felt like. There were so many videos of police brutality on the internet all the time. And it became this thing where you're saying, okay, well, if this is, you know, just the things that are being filmed, what's actually happening when people don't have a camera out. And so that was definitely an inspiration to write one of the smaller instances that still has huge repercussions after it. Yeah. Interesting. How did, how did you, how, so you went to grad school. Where did you, yeah. Where did you go? I went to the Iowa writers workshop and I just graduated this past May. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was a good experience for sure. What did you do prior to that? Uh, prior to that, uh, well, for in my 20s, for nine years, I lived in New York City and I was hitting a wall with my writing and I had applied to graduate school in 2014 and I got rejected about nine times. So that one hurt a little bit. Oh my goodness. And then good practice my now, publishing do. Very good practice. <laughs> yes. Uh, my... Now husband had a job opportunity in Arkansas and he said to come with him and try writing and applying to grad school again. And so that's what I did. And the second time around, I got accepted to nine schools. So Arkansas definitely was a good move. And so we spent a year in Arkansas and then we moved to Iowa City for graduate school. And now we're in Philadelphia where the book is based. It's amazing. I, like, I, Iowa Writers Workshop definitely has kind of like a mystical quality to people in the UK. Oh, really? Good. I kind of think of it as like, I've probably made this joke a billion times, but I kind of think of it as like the writer's Hogwarts. You know? Oh, I love that. <laughs> so many amazing, so many amazing writers seem to have come out of there. How did you feel? How did you feel about the sort of like, you know, when you said that you were the fifth person in your class to get a, a deal? Like, like being around that much sort of talent and it must have been an incredibly enriching, yet sort of like motivating and kind of what, what was the experience? I, I would say motivating is a huge part of it. Uh, part of it. Um, a lot of MFA programs are extremely small, and for a second I thought that maybe those would be better for me. But having so many writers and seeing so many different styles and approaches to writing, um, I'm glad that I went with a bigger program for sure. Um, I had a great experience. I had two professors that made a huge difference. Um, I mean, every writer knows, like, workshops are such a mixed bag, and you could have one bad egg or a professor who doesn't work out for you. But I felt like I got very, very lucky in having a good experience there. But the biggest part of IR Writers Workshop that, you know, makes a lasting effect is the fact that you have time just to write. Um, And it's very cold in Iowa City, so you don't want to go outside too often. And so I just sat in my room and, and wrote for months and months and months. And so I do not think that this novel would be in the world now had I not had that time. Yeah. That, that's so important, isn't it? Just like that, making the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, towards the end, probably for the last eight weeks, I was probably doing 10-hour days with it. And so I don't know of any other situation where I would have had that. It's like the, like the 10,000 hours kind of jazz that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. You know, you've, just got, you've got to put in the hours to become oh, yeah. who you are at something. Um, mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it is kind of nice that everyone else is doing those hours too, though. So it's a, it's a good place for that, for sure. For sure. And can you, could you talk a little bit about your um, getting the publishing deals? Because I, I understand it's been quite the whirlwind. It was a little bit of a whirlwind. Um, I queried agents in May. And came back with some good results, but I knew for sure that I wanted to be with my agent, Claudia Ballard. She's incredible. And 
I've never looked back on that decision for a second. She's been so wonderful. Um, we worked on the novel together for about a month and a half, um, changing a, things that definitely need to be changed, like the ending for sure. It was something that we worked on over and over again. And then we put it on submission. Uh, 10 days later, it sold. And we had uh, a few offers for film options as well, which was exciting. And then at the time, it was you know, really exciting options to be with different producing companies, but I really wanted the the novel in the hands of some people of color as well. And so my film agent was great about that, making sure that we're getting it into hands of diverse groups. And so I'm very, very excited to have ended up with Helen Grad and Lena Waithe and Sight and Scene. Oh, wow. Oh my God, you're working with Lena Waithe. That's so yes. exciting. Congratulations. Very, very exciting. Yes. Thank you. It feels like an extension of, of graduate school, like a little master class and and how production works and so yeah that's really really exciting and are you obviously you said you you know you love dialogue and you've got a background in theater are you going to be involved in the in writing the screenplay i'll be an executive producer for sure and so my we're, we're still figuring out where the home of such a finish will be and so i'll know more probably in the next few months which is also exciting yeah oh my god how exciting I'm, I'm very excited to watch it congratulations I'm excited too I love television obviously so it's fun to see how it will go there but it's just like like we were talking about earlier I'm excited to not be too precious about it and see what the film version of the story will look like so, so is it, it going to be it's going to be a film or it's going to be tv I don't want to say oh okay. I'm not fine. sure yeah you're we've gone back and forth a few times um, I think it'll lend itself to both. And so, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Okay, cool. Well, I will definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, great. And um, what are you working on now? I'm working on novel number two, very messily, uh, which is exciting. I'm trying to get as much out before book tour starts. Um, I feel like I finally hit a nice drive. Um, but my husband and I just moved to Philadelphia about three or four or five months ago. And so... Getting to know Philadelphia, um, making community here, and solidifying, you know, relationships with other writers and universities and whatnot, that's a huge goal for me as well. Cool. Well, I'm, I, I wish you all the luck in the world. I have no doubt the book's going to be a huge success. And, thank you um, so yeah, much. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have you heard about the Riff Raff Mentoring Scheme? This is a new service with Launch which pairs those currently working on books with published contemporary authors within your specific genre so that you can get expert advice and feedback on your work in progress. To read more, learn how to get involved and to check out our incredible lineup of author mentors slash coaches, head over to the-riffraff.com or come say hey on Twitter at riffraff underscore LDN.